Luke chapter 24 in the Lord's Word, Luke 24. The Lord has arisen from the dead. News has been given by the apostles and the women folk that he's alive, but when they came back and told the apostles in Jerusalem that he was alive, the word seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then Peter and John run, and they see the tomb is empty. So now we're going to break in at verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. Let's hear the infallible and errant word of God. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Nay, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. When they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went. And he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. It came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread." 
God bless the reading of his word for his name's sake. Please bow your head with me and your heart and let's ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is once again in thy Savior's dear name that we come, that name that is above every name, that is so sweet. And we pray, Lord, that we will, by the Spirit's work through the word, see something of how delightful Jesus Christ is. Our eyes will be opened. We will hear the Master's voice speaking through the written word to us. And my, may it be found of us, as it was found of these two men, our hearts burning within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As a people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there should be no happier people in all the world than Christians. There is, for God's people, every reason under God's Son, despite what hardships that they're called upon to face, despite what trials they may have to go through, despite what sufferings this world may bring into their lives, there is every reason in the world that Christians, Christians should be a rejoicing people. It was not for naught that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write those words to the Philippians to rejoice while he was in the depths of a Roman dungeon bound in chains. Nothing like the prisons of our day, but a dark, dank, rat-infested dungeon. If there's room to rejoice in those circumstances, sick, weary in body, awaiting the executioner's sword, then there's room to rejoice in our little corners, even when they're dark. Indeed, Jesus bids us shine in the midst of the trials because it is, it is that very response that speaks volumes to the world about the reality of faith, about the reality of the power and the love of Jesus Christ, like few things can. When the, when the world looks upon a child of God who is going through very deep waters and yet finds that Christian maintaining his faith in the Lord and indeed finds that Christian able to rejoice in the midst of all of that, then the world sees that Christ does actually make a difference in a man's life. That there is something to this thing they call Christianity. Something that they know they don't have. There are no people like God's people. Simply because there is no God like their God. They have a Savior. A Savior who's mighty to save. Ready to save. A mighty deliverer. Ready to defend He's the one who has brought about 
death, the death of death by his own death. And now they need never fear death. They need never fear anything this world can do to them. Anything that will ever happen to them. Christ is risen. And he lives within them by his spirit. They have heaven as their home. They know how it all ends. All is well with the righteous. How blessed they are. How happy they should be. But, as God's people, we all know that such is not always the case. We must all confess that we have known many seasons of despondency where we have lost our joy, we have lost our glow, we have lost our peace of heart. We become anything but an advertisement for the Christian faith. The trials of our faith that God sends into our lives seem to overwhelm us. Indeed, it's like all that we professed we believed has gone out the door, as if we've never believed it in the first place. Our faith seems almost non-existent. And so we hang our heads and our hearts in sorrow. We lose hope. And life itself seems futile. What's the point if this is how it's going to be? Now, while the reasons for this loss of our, can I put it like this, Christian sanity? where we are acting like people who've lost their minds. The reasons for this loss of joy, the glow and the peace, are various and sundry. The remedy always comes back, however, to one thing. We need a sight of Christ again. We need Jesus to come again. We may be still reading the Bible and saying our prayers, but we do it with very heavy hearts. Nothing is speaking to us. Our prayers seem like they're hitting brass and bouncing back, not getting past the ceiling in our prayer closet, let alone the clouds. We may attend the means of grace, the preaching of God's word, the Lord's Supper, but there is an emptiness in it all. Something is missing, and you know something is missing. And that something is the sight of Jesus Christ. It's always that. That fact is borne out in the Gospels in so many places. One of them is found, uh, interestingly enough, in John 20 on resurrection morning, where Mary Magdalene is found 
crying her eyes out at the tomb of Jesus Christ. What was the cause for the sorrow? She had simply lost sight of the Lord. He was gone. And she surmised that he was gone forever. That's how you usually think when somebody dies. They're gone. They're not coming back. And that's how she was feeling. He's dead. He's not coming back. I'll not be able to see him again. I won't ever hear him again. I won't ever enjoy his presence again. And all the blessings he brought into my life, they're gone for good. But sorrow filled that poor woman's heart. So filled with sorrow was her soul that even when angels spoke to her, it's like it didn't faze her. So distraught was she that she didn't even recognize Christ when he spoke to her. Supposing him to be the gardener. Isn't that amazing? Supposing him. She was so convinced he was dead. There's no way this man could be Jesus Christ. So distraught was she that she didn't even recognize Christ when he spoke to her. Woman, why weepest thou? We have another one of those scenes before us this morning. These two men are walking to the hometown of Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Seven mile walk. It's the Sunday following the crucifixion of Christ. The day is well spent. It won't be long before it's all over. As we draw alongside these these two men, if we can just sort of place ourselves along that dusty road to Emmaus, we find they're very sad. You can tell it by their countenances and the tone of their voices. These were disciples of Jesus Christ. They had believed on Christ, and these two disciples are full of sorrow, anxiety. But it's right at that juncture that we read a very interesting statement by Luke, and the only one, by the way, who records this appearance of Jesus Christ. And verse 15, Luke writes, And Jesus himself drew near and went with him. That, that text will be my title. Jesus drawing near. Remember, we are looking at when Jesus comes. Men are focused upon that first coming this time of the year, but I'm going beyond that. It would be a study well worth your time to go through the Gospels and look at situations where they were so bleak, desperate, But then Jesus comes, and everything changes. Whether it was Mary Magdalene, whether the man was sitting there born blind, you recall, from his youth, he was a baby, he was born blind, but then Jesus came. 
The disciples at, at the foot of the mountain of transfiguration, the Pharisees and scribes were arguing with them because they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy and they were just speechless. They had no idea why they had no power to do it. It was embarrassing, but and Jesus came. Jesus came and everything changed. So this is another case, Jesus drawing near. A few simple thoughts. First, let's think for a moment about the place where Jesus drew near. The place. As we said, it's this old dusty road to Emmaus that went from Jerusalem. There's nothing really glorious about this road. No, no great scenery that we would know about to be found upon it. But there was something that made it very special that late Sunday afternoon. And what made it special Two of the disciples of Jesus Christ were walking down it. That's what made that road very special. Let me stop here along the road that we're traveling right now. And the road that we're traveling in life and say to every believer here, no matter what road of life you're traveling down right now, no matter how dark it may be, no matter how rough that road may be, no matter how difficult it may be, it's a very special road because you're traveling on it and you're dear to Christ. Concerning this place that Jesus drew near, note several things first. This place that he drew near was a place of sorrow Christ remarked in verse 17 about their sadness. He saw it. These two men were walking down that road. A seven-mile walk is a long walk. And they're talking the whole way, and they're sad the whole way. Like Mary Magdalene, they imagined that they would never see Christ again. They had lost sight of the Savior. Oh, they were very happy when they saw him, when he was alive, when they could hear his preaching and see his miracles performed, doing wonderful things. But his words just spoke to their hearts. It meant them right at the point of their need. I can't imagine what it would have been like to hear the prince of preachers preaching. The greatest preacher in God's universe ever to walk on this earth, preaching what it would have been like to hear him deliver perfect sermons. Perfect delivery, infallible, unlike the sermons that men preach. Always knowing his audience perfectly, knowing what they needed to hear perfectly. Preaching always in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. I can get it. I can get the loss and the sadness you, you would feel if you felt this preacher who you loved and who had done so much to change your life is now, you think, gone forever and you'll never hear another sermon from his gracious lips. He was so unlike the teaching of the Pharisees. Not this cold, legalistic, dead, empty, doctrinaire preaching 
that was full of just do this and don't do that. He was so different. They marveled when he preached. But now he's gone. And gone are the miracles. I mean, can you imagine every day? This was life, seeing the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers healed, dead brought back to life. And now it's over. How descriptive this is of every child of God when that believer, through dark turns of providence, loses touch with Christ. When they're walking with the Lord in harmony and fellowship, when there's nearness to Him, when, when He is all the world to them, how happy they are. They're able to rejoice in the dungeon, so to speak. But how everything changes when the believer finds himself discouraged and despondent, not as much through the actual dark providence as it is through losing touch with Jesus Christ. Losing sight of the Savior. Life becomes a long, dull road of sad conversation and mournful thoughts. You no longer, oh, you come to church and you hear the sermon, but you no longer hear the Lord speaking to you through the sermon. Oh, that's a telltale sign. You believe the doctrine is being declared, but it never gets here. Your heart doesn't burn within you. You don't hear his voice. You don't sense his presence. And that just makes life a life of sadness and sorrow. John Newton captured it. And one of his poems, it's also a hymn. How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds, and sweet flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to look gay. It's just right there that we find Jesus himself drawing near. I want you to see that how ready and how willing Jesus Christ is to lift our sorrow. He does not send an angel to do this job. He does not send a human messenger. He could have done that. He sent the angel to announce his his resurrection. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. But himself. 
So willing and intent is the Lord on removing the sorrow that fills the heart. This was a task that he knew he had to perform himself and did not want to give it to anyone else. How oft in grief the child of God has found Christ himself drawing near to his soul, reassuring him that all is well, that he still loves his disciple, even though he's mourning in unbelief. He's still caring for him. And he still draws near to him. And the sorrow doesn't keep him back. He's ready to lift the sorrow. It was, as I've alluded to already, this not only a place of sorrow where he drew near, but it was a place of unbelief. They were dejected that day, so downcast. Their talk was so sad because they were riddled with unbelief. They didn't believe the words Christ had spoken to them. He had made it very clear that he was going to be killed, but he would rise again. I mean, it was so plain. They didn't believe, as Christ himself points out, the scriptures that were written about him. Had they believed, they would not have been on this long road of sadness. Had they just believed what Christ had said, had they just believed what his word declared about him, And the many miracles they were now mourning, they thought, were over and gone forever, that testified that he is who he says he is. If they had only believed, they would not have been riddled with this sad, mournful countenance. That is why I think it's an amazing thing that Jesus Christ himself drew near. Here were two disciples who, in a sense had given up hope in Christ. That's the tenor of their words. Verse 21. You haven't heard about Jesus? We thought he was the one. We trusted, verse 21, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. He said he would rise again on the third day. It's now the third day. You see that, you see that sun, you stranger, you see that sun, it's, it's, it's about to set. And he's not here. We had trusted. We thought it was him. But it appears that our trust was all in vain. Now, don't you go pointing a finger at these two men because you have three others pointing back at you. You have been there yourself. You've reacted to a dark providence and you have felt this is hopeless. You have felt, you have believed this is not going to end well. You've expected the worst when you know right well that it always ends well for the child of God. Always. It will always work together for good. Always. 
And you trusted? You trusted at one time. Yes, it'll always work together for good, but then that rough time comes and your hope seems to disappear. Is it not a display of the amazing love and long-suffering of Jesus Christ that he appears to these two disciples who had given up hope? That's amazing to me. They're in essence saying, you, you, you just strip it all away, Christ is not who he claimed to be. We trusted. But he's not coming back. And all this talk about people coming and saying the tomb is empty, where is he? How willing, how intent is Christ that his people be not faithless but believing? He did it with Thomas Didymus. Unless I can feel the print in his side and and his hands and his feet, I will not believe. And so the Lord appears seven days later in the room saying, Thomas, come here. You thrust your hand in my side and feel the nail print in my hands and be not faithless but believing. He came just for Thomas. Because Thomas was so full of sorrow and unbelief. How ready Christ was to restore Thomas to his joy. You know, the thinking is, I imagine, it's only when our trust is strong in the Lord that we're going to experience any nearness to him. Well, this scene right here dispels that thinking altogether because their faith was not strong and they were not full of Joyful confidence. Not at all. And yet Jesus himself drew near to them. How encouraging that is. How comforting that is. How humbling that is. And how instructive that is. Thirdly, it was a place where he drew near was a place where he was the center of the conversation. That's important to note. Verse 15, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near. I I think little do we realize how important it is for us as Christ's people to speak of him wherever we are to speak of him in our homes, in our jobs, our businesses, in our social gatherings, in our happy times and in our sad times, to have conversation about Jesus Christ. It was as they were involved in this talk, this conversation about the Lord, even though it was marked by sad unbelief that Christ do near to them. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ put a very high honor that day upon spiritual conversation amongst his people. That's when he drew near. They were talking about him. 
He was the centerpiece. Even as they traveled on down that road in sadness. That, that, that's a valuable lesson that you and I have to learn as God's people about the value of spiritual conversation. We read our Bibles, yes, and we pray in our prayer closets and we pray in church and that's all very good. But if we stop there, we neglect a very, a very great privilege and source of blessing. There's always time, it seems, to spend conversing about frivolous, trifling, unprofitable things that really have no bearing upon our spiritual life or the spiritual lives of those around us. But surely there's plenty of room in our conversations, whether short or long, with our spouses, with our children, with our church family, for conversing about the things of Christ. Surely it's something we have to cultivate. We have to tend this garden of conversation, pull out the weeds that would choke it out, see the importance, how the Lord looks upon it when we talk about him, when he's the center of it all. So we want, we, we, we want to speak of Christ no matter what road we're on. Make friends of those who talk about the Lord, who are far more at home talking about him than they are about politics, than they are about sports, than they are about the latest social media post. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. That little text tucked away says the Lord takes note of those who fear him and talk about him amongst themselves. It's when we do, we find Jesus himself draws near. And we have that sight of him that we need. In the second place, I want us to see the person who drew near, not just the place, but the person. First thing I want you to note, the person that drew near was a hidden person. <clears throat> he was a hidden Christ. <clears throat> these, these two men did not recognize it was Jesus. They thought he was like them, a common traveler down on this road, probably going to Emmaus, this little village. Why didn't they recognize him? Three years. Luke says in verse 16, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. That word holden means prevented or kept from. 
what, what was there preventing their eyes from recognizing that it was Jesus Christ? I, I believe from the passage there were several things at play here. In the first place, I, I, I believe it's safe to say at the very least that, that sorrow prevented them from seeing the Lord. They were filled with so much sorrow that they had lost their master, that he was gone. There's, there's no sorrow to a Christian like the sorrow that comes when he loses that sense of the Lord's presence in his life. When he loses that assurance that Christ is still for him, that Christ still cares for him. It was the Shulamite, you recall, who was upon her bed of ease and her beloved was knocking at the door. And she stayed in that very sad, deplorable state until he attempted to loosen the latch on the door to let himself in. And then we read that her heart was moved for him and she finally rises up to open the door, but he was gone. And you read of how she goes down the streets looking for him. Sawest thou him whom my soul loveth? And so I say that sorrow of heart, even, even godly sorrow for sin, can at times blind us to the very presence of Jesus Christ. And truths that would normally make us rejoice, those truths just seem to roll off our hearts like water off a duck's back. They go in one ear and out the other. They don't phase us at all. Sorrow has this power to blind us to Jesus Christ when he's standing there all along and we don't see him. In the second place, I believe we can say that they did not recognize Christ because of their unbelief. Verse 25, Christ said to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They weren't expecting to see Christ walking with them down that Emmaus road that day. And therefore, when he does come, they don't recognize him. They weren't expecting that. That's unbelief. Unbelief had shut their eyes. You see, folks, you see, if they had believed that Christ was alive, their faith would have said, would it not? Maybe this is the master coming. didn't even cross their minds. I have no doubt that our eyes had been holding, prevented from seeing the Lord during these long, lonely roads of despondency because of our unbelief. If a man lives by faith, if a Christian lives, I mean really lives, I don't mean regeneration, that kind of life. I'm talking about really living the Christian life by faith. Guess what happens when there's unbelief? He dies by faith. Oh, you don't lose spiritual life, but there's this deadness that just comes in and you don't see the things or the eye of faith has been clouded over with unbelief and you don't even recognize the Lord. You don't see that he's in the sorrow. You don't see that he's in the circumstance. The eye of faith 
sees the promise. And the promise is always wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the giver of the promise, the guarantee, the yea and amen of every promise of God. It is through faith, the eye of faith, that you see Christ. That is how it works. Unbelief blinded them. Faith, you know, folks, always finds Christ. Faith always finds Christ. He's the object of faith. Faith is, therefore, as Paul puts it in Hebrews 12, it's looking off unto Jesus. That's what faith does. In third place, we can say from this passage that their eyes were holding because of ignorance. Oh, fools, without knowledge. Verse 27, because of the lack of knowledge. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He was plainly showing them that all that's happened ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory? Ought not Christ to have died and risen again? So I'm going to begin at the beginning and show you that it is a truth all over the scriptures. And beginning at Moses, beginning at the Pentateuch, and going right to the prophets and the Psalms, he showed them Christ was supposed to suffer and die and then rise again and enter into his glory. It was ignorance. He was on every page, so to speak, and they didn't see it. The prophets' words were there to be read and to be understood, but they were really in the dark about what the Bible said about the Messiah. And no doubt the traditional views of the teachers of that day played a great role as part of their ignorance. And same is true in our own day. Nothing's changed. They, 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 many believers, I think far more than we perhaps know are very, they know very little about the Bible. All they know that they were lost, they were saved by Christ, he died on the cross for their sins, but it doesn't often get beyond that. And it explains why they don't see Christ. They really know very little about justification, which is all about Jesus. Little about the work of the Holy Spirit. They're not very versed in what spiritual union with Christ is about. The covenant of grace. Christ is mediator, election, 
the atonement. And yet these are very fundamental gospel truths. Fundamental. They're basic to understanding the gospel. And yet because of that, added to the problem, of course, as it was in Christ's day, the traditional teaching of the religious teachers has played a very large role in keeping the Lord's people in ignorance. It seems to be so much, at least from what I hear on the radio, that's the only place I would hear it. It's so very topical. It's so about current issues. It's about having a happy home and a happy marriage. It's about politics. Current events. And yet these great gospel doctrines are seldom expounded, explained. The Lord transformed my world when I first was taught the doctrine of electing grace. When I first learned that God did not pass over me when he chose out a people for himself, but he set his love on me, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It revolutionized my thinking. He didn't pass over me. If he had passed over me, I was left to eternal damnation. But he didn't. Isn't that interesting exactly when Peter, in his first epistle, is writing to believers who are going through, we'll talk about that tonight, God willing, going through tremendous suffering, he begins knowing, brethren, your election of God. And these are young believers. Not stalwart, long-standing Christians. They're new in the faith. And he's bringing up right at the outset, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In the midst of their sorrows. It's amazing. This book is all about the victorious person and work and victory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's all about that. It is Christocentric. Anything that will make you aware of his presence that will give you more knowledge of him is something you never want to turn away from. And this, I think, lies at the heart of the reason that God's people go on a lot longer than they need to along that sad, dusty Emmaus Road. Looking further at the person, it was Jesus who drew near. Jesus himself. It didn't say the Lord himself. It didn't say Christ himself. 
It didn't say Jesus Christ himself. It didn't say the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It said Jesus himself. That's the, the, those are the two words the Holy Ghost chose. Jesus himself drew near. Jesus. The name that identifies the Lord of glory with our humanity. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. This one being born as a babe in Bethlehem. Call his name Jesus. The name that identifies with us in all of our humanness. As much as Christ identifies with his deity. Jesus. His earthly name. That name that assures us he knows so well all of our struggles. He knows so well all of our sorrows. He knows all about the feeling of our infirmities, of our weaknesses. Because he was made one of us. The name that speaks of deliverance from our sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Old Testament Joshua, Jehovah is salvation. That name... declares to us the sins that cause us so many sorrows. He has taken care of them forever. When he forgives, he forgives wholly. Blotted out. I was just rehearsing for the joy of my own soul this morning ere coming here. My sins, every one, have been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He will not remember them against me. Oh, he knows every sin I've committed. They're not lost in that sense. But he will never remember my sins, any of them, against me. They've been forgotten in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that drew near. All that can be found in that word Jesus. The only name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Jesus. Oh, how sweet the name. Jesus drew near. One like me but wholly, completely. One who understands you and me because he walked in the flesh in this world and he will have that flesh throughout all eternity. It's an amazing, amazing truth. But it was... The resurrected Jesus that drew near. Risen from the dead. The victor over the devil, the victor over hell, the victor over sin, the victor over death. The early church, you know, when they met in the catacombs because of the persecution from Rome, every Lord's Day morning, when they met, every, not just on what we call Easter, Every Lord's Day morning, they met with this saying, the Lord is risen. And the other would reply, the Lord is risen indeed. 
And it was so much part of the warp and woof of their thinking. He is risen. He's risen indeed. We serve a living Savior, not a dead one. What, what have we to dread? What have we to fear? Since Christ is alive, never to die again, satisfied all of the law's just demands. And he lives in our hearts. We know he lives, not only from the declaration of God's word, but his spirit bears witness with our spirit that he is alive and he lives, he dwells within us. The spirit is called the spirit of Christ. That won't mean a whole lot if it's not apprehended by faith, laid hold of by faith. It'll just be an orthodox doctrine that you check off on the box. I believe that. It's believing it in such a way that Jesus draws near through the doctrine. Thirdly, what was the purpose? The purpose of Jesus in drawing near. There's much this truth has to teach us. Christ did not reveal himself to them, notice, right away. Not right away. Interesting. He sees them sad. He lets them go on a while. Can you imagine it? They're, they're, they're so downcast. He knows why. But he says, what are you guys talking about? Why are you so sad? Why did he do that? Because Jesus Christ wanted to bring out from them what was really going on in their hearts. The Lord does the same today. He, he will draw near to us in a way along the road of life where we don't recognize it's the Lord. Why does he do it? Well, in the first place, he had to reprove them for their unbelief. And that's what verses 25 and 26 are about. Then said again to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, all, all that the prophets have spoken ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. There's some encounter that we have, some experience, and the Lord is in it all the time. He's in it all the time, and we just don't see him. Our eyes are holden. Let me tell you what happens It brings out of us what is really in our hearts. That we might see the folly and the unbelief. Because that's where you got to get to. Because that's the real problem. It's not the circumstances. It's the folly. It's the ignorance. And it's the unbelief. That's the real issue. Get to that and you deal with the sorrow. You deal with the sadness. Don't deal with the real problem and you'll never get to that place. Had they known that it was Jesus Christ right away, they would have kept these things to themselves. Wouldn't they have? 
But now when all is said and done, when they have walked together down this road, it all comes out. We learn what we really are. We learn what's really in us when there's a hidden Christ on the scene. It's the Lord, but you don't see him. And he's doing that for a reason. Ultimately, it was to reveal his own person and work. That's what it was really getting at. These men needed to see him. They needed a fresh sight of who he was, according to the Scripture. Now, finally, the power of Jesus in drawing near. What effect did that have upon them, and what effect does it have upon us? Three things, and I'm done. It will deepen, in the first place, our longing for Christ's nearness. Jesus drew near, he opened up the scriptures to them, gave them understanding, and what's their response? Verse 29, he he made as though he would go further, but they constrained him, saying, abide with us. They constrained him, they wanted him to be near them. And isn't that what happens, brothers and sisters, when the Lord reveals himself to us, and we see him with the eye of faith, and we say, Lord... Come nearer. We don't want you to leave. It fired their love for Christ. In verse 32, they said one to the other, did not our hearts burn within us? Burning, burning. Our hearts were set on flame as we heard him preach to us from the word of God. He drew near and our hearts burned. I don't mean for one moment to intimate that everyday Christian life is always going to be your heart just burning within you. No, sometimes the walk of faith is just a walk of faith. I feel nothing, but I believe him, and I'm going on with the Lord. But oh, do you not value the times When Jesus draws near and your heart burns within you. You can't really explain it. You just know your heart is just melted like wax. You're like that seven-year-old girl in the midst of the 59 revival in the north of Ireland. And one of the meetings, this is is a seven-year-old girl. You'll know what she said in prayer. Oh, Christ, her her, her tears were just streaming down her eyes. Oh, Christ, come to me. Come to me. And when you do come, don't leave me. But I, stay with me. Her heart was burning within her. Because Jesus was near. She constrained him. Seven-year-old kid, praying like that. One final thing it will do, this power of Christ. When Jesus draws near, it will move us to tell others about him. 
Verse 33, they arose the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together. And them they were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared. And they say, Yep. Yeah. They told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them, and breaking of bread. They wanted to tell the others that Jesus is alive. It moved them to tell others about Christ. Do you want to know what the secret is to evangelism, to being those who go out and tell others and get beyond all of the, the fear of man? That's Jesus drawing near. Seeing him. So, what are we going to do? What do you, what do, you, what do, you do with the follow-up here? Because I'm done preaching for this message. It's what we do now with it. What, wouldn't, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be right to be asking the Lord, O oh Christ, come to me. Come to me. And when you do come, don't leave me, but I stay with me. Cause my heart to burn as you cause the hearts of those two men to burn. You're still the same Christ. It's still the same gospel. You're still the same Savior. You haven't changed. Lord Jesus, come. May you do that for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek him together. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee. The the gospel is old yet ever new. We thank Thee Thou hast given to us, to the church, the Spirit of Christ, to take the things of Christ and reveal them to us, particularly to reveal Him to us. And it's in His name we pray. Lord Jesus, blessed Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, Thou triune God, that Thou wilt open our eyes. Thou wilt show us those things in the Scriptures that we need to see. And surely, Lord, we'll have that holy heartburn. We'll have that interest in telling others that He's risen. Our conversation will be far more heavenly than it is earthly. Show us, Lord, how to live this life one day at a time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.